Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the podcast segment of the show that is not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for the 387th show is journalist Tom Philpott, who will be talking to us about his book. Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of the American Farmer, and How We Can Prevent It. Our history buffs are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. Terry, since you aren't as disgusted with Farm Bureau as much as Ed and I are, you get to start off this time. Well, I can't say I know much about that, um, though my grandfather was a... It doesn't take you long to figure it out. (laughs) But I do know something about this, and I would like you to talk about, um, about the critical connection uh, for livestock farmers uh, with meatpacking plants. We have seen recently with COVID how it has impacted, for example, temporary closures of meatpacking plants, which has had a horrible rippling effect for our farmers because it's resulted in an overabundance of livestock that they couldn't take to market. Um, I know farmers tried to adjust feed rations to hold off growth, but still um, it was devastating. Can you talk about how our government, either state or national, can help with the handling of these future interruptions in meatpacking plants? That's a great question. And I think the answer lies in have more meatpacking plants and smaller meatpacking plants and have meatpacking plants that can operate without the pressure to run the line speeds so fast that you have to have workers working shoulder to shoulder or the plant, the, the company is not going to make a profit. And that, so that's what, that, that was a really, uh, cause I did a lot of work on in the COVID-19 crisis, which happens since my book came out. I've done a lot of work on conditions in meatpacking plants. And what we've seen in these places um, is that they've gotten so big and the profit margins in these plants are, uh, are really tight. And, you know, that is true because of consolidation in the retail sector. So these companies, they feel like, you know, like a, a penny an hour. I mean, we're talking about like tiny margins can turn into big profits or big losses really fast. And so they, they feel like they, you know, they have pressure to keep the line going really fast and keeping the line going really fast means workers shoulder to shoulder. And that means that there's a viral pathogen going around. It's really hard to stop. And that's why that sector, you know, got hit as bad or worse than any sector outside of healthcare in the COVID-19 crisis. And so I just think, you know, basically breaking up the meat giants, um, you know, you know, higher prices for me that um, that create uh, a more of a buffer in the margin um, and and just sort of creating more local markets for for meat and more meatpacking plants. Because, you know, that's the other thing is like the, the, the sort of old meat lockers of Iowa and the Corn Belt have greatly reduced over the past 30 years. And so if you're a farmer and all of a sudden the giant Tyson plant, the giant JBS plant um, has closed, then you really have no alternative. And so you're scrambling, like you said, to, you know, lower feed rations, 
or, or whatever, and even sometimes euthanizing hogs, um, just because there's no alternative. So I think we just need a lot more smaller, mid-sized meatpacking plants that can handle a slowdown to prevent a viral, pathog- a viral pathogen from devastating the workforce. Okay. Um, Ed? Well, and I'd follow up on that with saying that, um, you know, what we also saw here with meatpacking was that this is what happens with a very capital-intensive system that is um, incredibly brittle. And I think Tom's alluding to that, that there's no give in the system. And in my mind, it calls for a radical change in production methods. Um, But that also goes back to one of the problems is the age of farmers, because for the last 50 years, we have done everything possible to help the large entity or the heir at law to the assets of this business, but we've done absolutely nothing for the successor in business. And that goes across ag policy. It goes across uh, tax policy right on down the line, um, particularly with market access. Um, you know, and I, and I think about a quote that I think is from Upton Sinclair that explains a lot of this is that things are often the most difficult to see for those whose power is derived from not seeing. Them. <laughs> well, um, exactly. And, and paycheck. Yeah. Well, okay. I want to take that a little bit where Ed's talking about then. So what is your view, um, Tom? What are the future generations? I mean, as I said, um, I grew up on a farm. My brothers and I wanted to farm, and then the uh, farming crash hit in the 80s. I'm 54 years old, and that idea right. was thrown out the window. And uh, Ed's a little bit older than I am, but that generation lost out. And it's still, I mean, what is the future in farming for, because the numbers are getting less and less and less. And, uh, yes, uh, I think I read this years ago that 1960 there were 88,000 farms farmers in Iowa, and now it's down to less than 10,000. So what's in the future? I mean, if things keep going on as they are, I, I, you know, I think we have a very grim future. But I also, I mean, I think so the, the, the grim future being, you know, fewer and fewer farms that are bigger and bigger and bigger, um, and the system gets more and more brittle, uh, and crises like the COVID-19 crisis hit harder and harder, and we just have a lot more 2020s. Like everyone's talking about how rough a year 2020 is. And I think it, it's a harbinger if we don't shake things up really fast in a lot of uh, ways in our society. And, um, but I think it doesn't have to be that way. So we're a democracy and we could come together in Congress and talk about, um, well, there's this problem of farm succession. There's this prom- problem of uh, hyper-consolidation of farms. And what policies could we put in place to um, make it easier for um, new operations to come in? Not, not just of successors and, and heirs, but um, people outside, the, outside of that, um, outside of the, the sort of bloodlines, that want to come into farming and, you know, could we do this in a fair way? And, you know, I can think of all kinds of policies that, that could help, uh, that that could help with that. But all the policies that I can think of directly contradict the interests 
of these giant companies. If you're a, you know, Bear or Corteva, these are the successor companies of Monsanto and Dow and DuPont. If you're those companies, then the current situation is great. They're selling loads and loads of, of agrochemicals. They, um, you know, they, they, they're sort of the, the, the guys supplying the shovels during the gold rush. The, the gold rush can, can you know, gold, the price of gold can go up and down, but the guy supplying the shovel is always making a profit, and that's the position they have. And so they're, you know, really happy with the status quo. And I, so I think our political problem is figuring out how to dislodge them from controlling the political system. Okay, um, I, I'm going to kind of look at that in, in a slightly different way. Do we have any examples of, of agricultural um, economies in other places in the world that seem to be doing a better job or, or maybe cultural uh, outlooks that seem to be doing a better job um, that we could use as kind of models to, to sort of reform our own agriculture system i know probably not anybody at the same scale we're operating at but i just would like to hear some success stories well i mean i think that that's a really good question and um and i always think about the example of italy and i I think france might be also a little bit in this boat and and that is that their policymakers decided at a certain point that hey you know we're uh, we're a culture that really values food that values good food and we like um we like small towns like people in rome like to go out to the countryside and um and visit a a quaint um rural town that's based on agriculture and um and it sucks for them when they go and there's a ghost town there because all the farms have consolidated and, and and picked up and and so you know, those governments, and I'm not saying they're perfect at all, but over the past 30 years, they made the decision that, hey, we like to have small and mid-sized farms. And we see the way the global economy is going that is going to make it really difficult for them, that they're going to get squeezed by consolidation and retail and, you know, crop subsidies in both in Europe and the United States. And so what policies can we put in place to preserve these um, these the small and mid-sized farms, and they've done a really good job. I mean, subsidies. You know, I don't like. I'm against the subsidy system as it is now, but subsidies don't have to be a terrible thing. Like, we don't have to subsidize awfulness. We could, you know, we we can come up with a system that says, you know, how can we support? It doesn't have to be dollar payments, but like, sort of, it, it could be like infrastructure investments. You know, investing in those uh, slaughterhouses we were just talking about, but you could you could make a policy that says, okay, we want to live in a world that isn't controlled by you know this devastating world of this ever aging farm population that gives rise to this ever tiny number ever tinier number of farms. We want to have some variety. We want to have different kinds of people. Um, you know, African Americans in 1920 owned, you know, something like 20% of American farmland. And in 2020, they own close to 0% of American farmland. And I've been doing some reporting about how a lot of young African-American folks want to get back into farming. Um, And so, you know, figure out policies that can make land transfers 
you know, two, you know, young people who want to grow for local and regional economies. Um, I, I think it's I think it's very possible. And if you go to Italy, you know, you'll see vibrant small and mid-sized farm economies because the government has decided that it's worthwhile and they, they've put policies in place to keep it in place. I think it's harder to bring it back than it is to preserve it. So it's a bigger challenge, but I, I do think it's very possible. All right, Terry, I'm going to give you the last question. <laughs> All right. Thank you. So uh, my last question is then, Going back to trade negotiations, and when we look at trade negotiations in the future um, to help our farmers and inevitably to help ourselves, um, my friend, again, who is a farmer, mentioned that marketing is about relationships. So I'm concerned, did we damage any long-term relationships with our trade wars? Absolutely. Um, If, you know, if you're... Um, a Chinese bureaucrat or a Chinese um, agribusiness executive and you are, um, you know, you want a steady supply of soybeans to feed your giant factory hog farm uh, system, which they're putting into place to mimic the United States, then you you want a steady supply. You want, you want to know where your, your next, you know, bushel of soybeans is coming from and they've had this great relationship to the U.S. for 15, 20 years, um, put in place really solid relationships. And then all of a sudden, it gets completely, you know, there's this wrench thrown into it. And so they quickly go over and say, okay, who else can we get our soybeans from? And they go over to Brazil and start making relationships with people in Brazil. And Brazil has been vying to get to take market share successfully uh, from the U.S before Trump uh, started his machinations. And so it was a great opportunity for Brazil and a really perilous thing for uh, the American farm sector because uh, your friend is exactly right. Um, you know, the, the trade war ended, China needed more soybeans, China's dipping back into the market, but it's got to be in the back of people's minds like, hey, this, this was taken away suddenly without warning. It could happen again. Um, Brazil has never given us any trouble on this front. Um, you know, let's start thinking of Brazil as the number one supplier. So, yeah, um, I think I think damage was done. All right. Well, we would like to thank our guest for this 387th show, journalist Tom Philpot, who talked to us about his book, Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. The History Buffs for today's show were Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.